Well, sometimes when you come across a warning sign, it, it just makes sense. It's the sort of thing that we expect. So have a look at this picture on the screen. Okay, we see this one at every train station, don't we? You know, it's a warning to be safe around the trains. You have to mind the gap, you know, stand behind the yellow line. It's a warning sign that we expect. Sometimes, though, a warning sign, it jumps out at us. It's not what we expect. So here's a picture of the gate going into our backyard, okay? Believe me, they are pretty ferocious, just like the little, you know, the rabbit Monty Python. Um, or, or what about this one here, another warning sign? I, I have no idea what that means, okay? But, you know, caution tomatoes. Or this one here, parking only, all others will be crushed and melted. Uh, committee of management members, this is the new one that's going out in the back parking lot here at the church. And, uh, and this one here. Okay, keep that in mind. Be warned, all right? Uh, you know, there are, there are all kinds of warning signs, aren't they? Uh, there are the warning signs we expect, the warning signs we don't quite expect, something like that one. But then we have very real words of warning like this one. Verses from our passage. Oops. Verses from our passage. Uh, Jesus warns that people we might think would get into the kingdom of heaven might actually be rejected by him. Here we are almost at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus isn't slowing down. He's bringing it all to a head. Remember, this whole sermon has been about how to live as his people. And last week, uh, when Sam preached, we explored the, the previous passage where Jesus said to make sure that we're entering through the narrow gate, and that we're journeying on the narrow path, the narrow road to life. In today's passage, he picks up from there, and we get a strong warning about who enters through that gate and who is on that path. And so we can ask then, well, who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Who has eternal life? Well, Jesus gives us two answers. And the first is that the person who gets into heaven is the one who's fruitful. The one who's fruitful. So let's read the first section of our passage again. Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, this is pretty confronting, isn't it? Jesus is saying that not everyone is who they seem to be. There will be people in the church who look like sheep, but really they're wolves. They look like Christians, but they're not. And as we said just now, there'll be some people who might think they should inherit eternal life, but they won't. A big key to figuring out who is who, Jesus says, is to look at their fruit. You know, a piece of fruit will always tell us which kind of tree it's come from, doesn't it? I mean, no, it doesn't work any other way. You hold an apple, it's come from an apple tree. You hold an orange, it's come from an orange tree. 
Well, people have fruit too. Our life uh, produces things. And these things tell us who we really are. I think there are a couple of ways to understand fruitfulness in this passage. And the first is to understand it within this big story of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we've got to keep in mind the bigger picture of what Jesus is saying. So remember, he began this sermon by saying back in chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember how we described that back a couple of months ago? It's blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who they know they're sinners. They're not depending on themselves or their works for salvation. Uh, They find their righteousness in Jesus alone. And this is the thread that runs all through the sermon. The Christian life has never been about just doing good or being moral or being very religious. And Jesus has just spoken, hasn't he, about the narrow gate the narrow road. And so one thing in mind here is the question of whether this is the sort of truth that's being taught and lived in a person's life. You know, is the core reality for, uh, for someone a spiritual bankruptcy and the narrow path of trusting in Jesus alone? Or if I can ask this another way, you know, despite any religious language or works connected with a person, if you cut them, Will they bleed this gospel? I uh, recently preached at a special event at uh, another Presbyterian church. Uh, I was on the mid-north coast, and I was pleasantly surprised to run into an old friend from Bible college, uh, someone I hadn't seen in years. And uh, I found out that he's uh, now a minister in another denomination. Uh, He was a guest there on that night, and uh, he shared some of his struggles with me. He told me that the core problem that he's facing is that within his part of New South Wales, within his denomination, he is one of only a few ministers who fully believe in the biblical gospel. Let me be even more explicit. In his whole area, there are churches that are doing churchy things. They're holding church services, they have the sacraments and community involvement and weddings and funerals and baptisms and people preach sermons at their churches. But the ministers literally do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He's not the living Lord who died and rose to pay for our sins in the way that we understand and what we preach and teach and share and hear every week. So there'll be people in those churches who claim to be Christians who even use and know the name of Jesus, but they're on the wide path. Because without a resurrected Lord, you lose the essence of the gospel. And then you can have pretty much any flavor of faith or Christianity or religion that you want. But of course, lack of fruit can be even more subtle. Maybe a person's fruit is church being Sunday only. And there's zero thought of Jesus for the rest of the week. Or when there's a lot of time, a lot of energy into secondary matters are put into ministries, but there's no emphasis on salvation in Jesus alone, where it's, you know, it's about the church instead of the Christ. See, being on the narrow road, it has to spill over into the general shape of what someone believes. It just has to. You know, it has to be the teaching that will shape our Christian understanding. True fruitfulness 
is sticking with the core teaching of what we hear in the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that's part of what Jesus is saying here. But I also think that we can look for fruit in another way. Are we people who have visibly taken on board Jesus' sermon here? Can the fact that we are kingdom people, can that be seen in our life? Let me share just a, just a few examples. Matthew 3, 8, Jesus says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So is there a knowledge of sin? Taking it seriously, bringing it before God. Now, yes, we're going to continue to struggle with sin, but are we working with it or, you know, or are we ignoring it? How can a person be spiritually bankrupt if they claim that spiritually there's nothing wrong with them? Or what about the fruit of the Spirit? As we see in Galatians 5, the classic passage sort of captures that idea. You know, things like love and joy and peace and patience and so on. Are these things visible in our life? Now again, I don't mean that we need to be perfect in any one of those. But is depth of fruitful Christian character, is it there somehow for people to see? You know, are these things growing in us as we become more like Jesus? Or what about the sort of things that we see in the Sermon on the Mount? The things we've been exploring over the last couple of months. So what about being salt and light in the world? Now, this witnessing can be through words or action. Simply being a transparent follower of Jesus. Uh, what about being a peacemaker? What about the things we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, uh, wanting God to be honored, uh, forgiving others, and depending on God for our daily needs? What about the need to not be a showy Christian, but being willing to act behind the scenes? What about the sacrifice and humility needed to do tough things like love our enemies? What about purity? Now, I could go on, but I, I really hope you get the point. Is there visible fruit does following Jesus actually make a difference in how we live? Is the gospel shaping us? These are very important questions. And let me say, if there is fruit, and you know there is much fruit as I look across this church and watch lives, there is. If there is fruit, praise God for his grace. But let me qualify this a bit further, though. Remember as well that we are works in progress. Jesus is not expecting, as he says this, that we are beyond sin and we're going to live a perfect life. Remember, we're depending on him as the perfect one for our salvation. And so as we live out our faith, it's not always going to be easy to live Jesus' way. Believe me, I know all about that. Sometimes certain sins seem to get a stranglehold on us. Uh, we go through dark patches, don't we? Sometimes we even backslide. Some, some temptations are stronger than others. And we live in a broken world with Satan trying to undermine us at every opportunity. So please, whatever you do, don't hear this call to good fruit and then beat yourself up because you're not a perfect Christian. Or that you're not good enough. Because none of us are. None of us. But in hearing that, let's not miss what Jesus is saying. In the true Christian life, just generally speaking, there should be some good fruit. And if it's not quite visible now, well, has it been? Or what if you take the bigger perspective, you stand back from your life, does your life as a Christian look different than it did, say, maybe five years ago? 
Listen to how the Apostle Paul prays for the Philippians. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So being fruitful really means that the truth of Jesus has genuinely shaped the understanding of our faith, our life, and our character. We can say that we're a Christian, we can do religious things, but being fruitful comes from being changed from the inside out. So here's something I suggest. Why not ask a Christian you trust, someone who actually will be honest with you, and ask them if they see the fruit of Jesus in your life. Ask if the stamp of being in Christ is there. Can this person see growth over the years? The answer is yes. Well, praise God. Keep living in that direction and his strength. Keep doing that. But if the answer is anything else, then ask God to produce fruit in your life, just like Paul prays for the Philippians. See, real fruit comes from a relationship with Jesus. And this brings us to our other answer for today. Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Who gets in through that small gate? Well, those who are depending on that relationship with Jesus. Those who are depending on their relationship with Jesus. And again, we we get this in two parts here. The first is in verse 21. Look with me, please. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Jesus is getting into some pretty scary territory here. He makes it clear that having Jesus' name on our lips as Lord is just not enough. Some are going to say that, but they're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. But the person who does the will of our heavenly Father is the one who's going to journey to eternal life. But we need to be careful how we understand this verse. We can't take God's will to mean just doing the things that God likes to see done. So if I can pick just one example, let's take the poor and the marginalized, okay? The poor and the marginalized are big on God's heart, and it's that way all across Scripture. And yes, we're called to care for the poor. But we can't just, you know, give to someone in need, uh, make a donation somewhere, sponsor a compassion child, and then, okay, tick that box, I've done it. You know, hey God, look at me, doing your will, doing the good Christian stuff you expect, now let me into your kingdom. Doing God's will runs deeper. It's not just acting out Christian stuff, but it's about obedience that comes from our relationship with him. It comes from the heart. Bible scholar Don Carson, he puts this very, very well when he says, this is from his book on the Sermon on the Mount. It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. 
Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. So maybe a good way to get behind this is to ask the question, why as a Christian do I do the things that I do? Why do I do the things that I do? Remember, Jesus has been saying all along in the Sermon on the Mount that kingdom living is not about being churchy, is not about being religious. And here he drives the point home by saying that you can even do things that align with the will of God, still not going to count towards eternal life. That is, if that obedience is not driven by a real relationship with God in the first place. And if you want to see why I say it as strongly as that, well, listen as Jesus goes on now to give examples. This is the other part of us depending on our relationship with him. That that heart-level obedience that he wants, it's connected with living for him instead of just living for ourselves. So listen as I read the end of our passage, starting at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Feel the weight of these words. This is scary stuff. Jesus is describing people here now who do a lot more, did a lot more than just being somehow saying they're connected with the church. They've done strong Christian things. There are spiritual gifts on view. And yet Jesus says to them on the last day, I never knew you. Wow. What's the problem here? Well, let's stand back from these verses for a moment. What are these people actually doing on that day? Now, this is judgment day, okay, that Jesus is talking about. They're still trying to prove themselves to Jesus by the religious works that they've done. That's what's happening here. It's about them. It's not about him. Their words show that in their hearts, they have been living the very opposite of being poor in spirit. They may have fooled everyone else in this life. In fact, they're probably the kind of people everyone said, oh, look at that person. It's a great Christian. But they won't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. See, they've given the wrong answer. If Jesus asked, well, why should I let you into heaven? The answer is not, hey, Jesus, look at all the great things I've done, even in your name. The Bible tells us that even Satan can raise up people who do uh, false miracles in his power. Jesus talks about people who don't know him. Very similar words in Matthew 15. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, the real answer to that question is, because I'm in a relationship with you, Jesus. Because you died for me. Because I have nothing to offer. You've done it all. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. Friends, there's no way to sugarcoat this. The pathway to eternal life is a narrow road with a small gate. We only get into the kingdom of heaven if we are in a relationship with Jesus. 
if we're trusting in him for eternal life, if Lord on our lips means Lord over our hearts and our sins and our salvation. So being in the church for decades just won't do it. Being heavily involved in ministries just won't do it. Having a friendly relationship with Christians and coming to church from time to time for spiritual input just won't do it. Being a minister, being an elder, being a leader, that in and of itself is not going to do it. Knowing your Bible well is not going to do it. Now, are these things good? Most of these things are very good. But without a dependent and saving relationship with Jesus driving them, they're actually worthless in the biggest scheme of things on an eternal perspective. But here's the flip side of this as well. Maybe your Christian walk has been challenging. Maybe you really waver in the strength of your prayer life, in your Bible reading, your devotional time. Maybe you've never been involved in a formal ministry. Maybe you're in a dark patch right now and you're genuinely struggling with doubt. Maybe you sometimes say, you know, I don't feel like a very good Christian at all. Maybe growth is slow. Maybe the very real challenges in your life leave you wondering if following Jesus is worth it sometimes. Maybe you feel like you're going backwards and there's a certain sin that won't stop rearing its ugly head. But you know what? Even if any of these things are true and you are in a real relationship with Jesus, he will never turn you away. If he has claimed your heart, it is his forever, and there is zero, zero, zero chance that he will say to you on the last day, go away, I never knew you. Instead, he'll say, come to me, come home, come to your place of rest. Of course I know you. I died for you. How could I ever forget you? I love you. Friends, do you get it? Do you see what the Sermon on the Mount has been about all along? The true Christian life has never been about doing all the right stuff. Now, yes, there are good works and good ministries that we should do that please God. And our works, when truly done in his name, they are never in vain, we're promised. But these things don't define us. They don't give us an automatic entry ticket into heaven. It's not about being publicly religious. It's not about saying to Jesus, look at all I've achieved, even in your name. Look at me. It's about looking to him. And when we do, the promise is a real relationship and a fruitful life spilling over into eternal life. Pray with me, please. Great Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount once again, and we praise and thank you for the words of Jesus here, as confronting and challenging as they are. We praise you that we have the word of truth, that Jesus doesn't give us a a wishy-washy, soft, sugar-coated Christianity, but we're told exactly as it is. And so, Lord, please protect us from ever thinking that we can depend on our own efforts, that we can work our way into your kingdom. 
Lord, give us the courage to look at our hearts honestly before you when we ask that you will pour out your fruit on us. We ask that we will be entirely dependent on our relationship with Jesus. We ask that we won't live in fear of Jesus saying, I never knew you, but living in in great hope and confidence and assurance because we know we're in a relationship with him. Father, help us to have conversations with each other about this and to encourage each other as we walk forward. Lord, we want to be genuine Christians. We don't want to be people who just look good in the world's eyes or, or just be a church that gets all the churchy things right. At the heart level, we want to know you and love you as you keep pouring your grace into us. Father, thank you for these words. In Jesus' name, amen.